This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Deborah Holt-Larkin, who is the author of A Lovely Girl, The Tragedy of Olga Duncan and the Trial of One of California's Most Notorious Killers. Debbie, thanks for being here with me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Could you start by talking a little bit about um, this book and how it came to be and maybe um, giving us a little information about um, why you decided to return to this story from the 1950s. A, a Lovely Girl is the true story of Olga Duncan's uh, abduction uh, and murder in 1958, California. Uh, but it's also a memoir about me as a 10-year-old girl. I became obsessed with Olga's uh, disappearance. Um, and my father was uh, a reporter for the uh, the paper, this this crime uh, occurred in in my hometown, and he was a reporter for the paper, and he was uh, the lead reporter to cover um, the from the time of Olga's disappearance all the way through the trial and the execution of her killers, and um, he was an interesting guy. He was uh, really kind of had no filter, and uh, I heard all about uh, this at home, asked many questions, and. Uh, so anyway, I, I don't think uh, obsessed is too strong of a, a word for my interest in this. Um, when Olga Duncan disappeared, it was really a pivotal moment in my life because I was living um, 1950s. It was uh, a more innocent time. We often think of that time as a more innocent time. And, and things like this just didn't happen in my hometown. So when she disappeared and then when her body was discovered, it was suddenly a wake up call for me that, oh my gosh, you know, bad things can really happen here. And it sort of fed into my worst nightmares, the idea that someone could just, you know, disappear uh, from from their apartment and and then be found dead later. So um, it's a, a book that weaves the story of Olga's um, disappearance, the investigation, the trial, uh, weaves through the story of uh, my 1950s life. Um, I think that the, um, the memoir gives context to the, uh, the story of the, the true crime procedural and also the true crime procedural kind of gives you uh, a little bit of context of, of what life in the 1950s was like. 
um, it's, you know, when I first was writing this book, people are always asking you, okay, well, what's your book about? Or, you know, and um, one of the things that I used to say was, well, it's Dave Barry meets Anne Rule in Fargo. And that really sort of um, touches on the fact that my dad was this columnist. He was writing a weekly column about you know, a lot of things were going on around town, but frequently kind of uh, things going on in our family. It was a humorous column. And um, the end rule part is, well, there's this true crime. The Fargo is that this was a bizarre murder and these killers were bumbling and brutal at the same time. So um, I think that I, I'm hoping that I answered your question. I'm trying to think it was kind of had a number of things in it, but uh I, I could stop there. And then I could tell you just a, a brief uh, bit, I guess, before I, we go on about uh, Olga's um, the Olga's tragedy. Um, Olga was a seven months, she was seven months pregnant. She was a registered nurse at a hospital in Santa Barbara. She was married to an up and coming local uh, defense attorney. And, um, at the time of her, they were married in uh, June of 1958, and she uh, murdered, disappeared in November of 1958. So she hadn't been married very long, and already Frank, her her attorney husband, was no longer living with her at her apartment. He would visit occasionally, but he had moved back to live with his mother, who was extremely demanding and uh, threatening to commit suicide if she he didn't move back home with her. So the night that Olga disappeared, uh, Frank was uh, living was at home with his mom. And uh, that night, Olga had invited a couple of her nurse friends uh, from the hospital over, and uh, they um, had refreshments and were she was showing them the baby clothes that she made for her unborn child, and. Uh, the friends left about eleven ten, and Olga Duncan was never seen alive again. So, so you start us, and and you sort of we enter the story, and you move back and forth um, between chapters, between your experience and sort of Olga's experience, and so you kind of set that up for us, right? This experience, this um, young woman who is hanging out with her friends, and then all of a sudden disappears, and so. You say your dad was a reporter and and was sort of doing more columns about the family, sort of fun things. So could you talk a little bit about how your dad um, started to get involved with Olga's disappearance and then subsequently the trial uh, for her murder? Well, this was, uh, I, I should have said, too, that Olga lived in Santa Barbara, but the killers um, drove over the county line into Ventura County, and she was actually murdered in Ventura County. So it became a Ventura uh, story because that was um, where they were charged. But anyway, this was the biggest story that had happened um, in in this in San, both Santa Barbara and Ventura uh, in a very long time. And my dad was the lead reporter for the newspaper, so he was assigned to the case. But he was also um, you know, very interested uh, in the case. It wasn't just a job for him. Um, and so that's how he was assigned to the um, to cover this case. 
he was uh, the only reporter who was at, at every session of every trial uh, of at, for all three of her killers. So he, even afterwards, he became the local expert and he talked about this for years. Um, I have a, 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 he used to refer to it as the remarkable Duncan case. So he also was, uh, had an unusual parenting style. I think um, he had no filter. And um, even though I was only 10 years old, I was reading the newspaper and he, we had lots of newspapers in our home, not just the one that he worked for, but he would bring uh, newspapers home from, uh, you know, big cities or whatever. And they were just sort of around the house. So I did uh, at 10 uh, read the newspapers I became very interested in this story. I identified with Olga. Oh my gosh, if this could happen to her, could it happen to me? And um, he was willing to talk to me about it. He would would try to kind of discourage me. And my mother would say sometimes, oh, Bob, you're scaring the children. But, you know, he he still talked about it around the dining room table. He would come home from the trial and uh, we would hear about some of the crazy goings on in that trial. And so also just what happened to Olga, it, it, it stuck with me my entire life. So when I um, wanted to write, I write and I, I thought I wanted to write a, a mystery, a fictional book. And I would try to take this plot and somehow fictionalize it. But I have a lot of... Uh, uh, never finished books with just the first few chapters because it was so hard to fictionalize because honestly it was stranger than fiction and I didn't really believe that um, ultimately a publisher would you know buy this it's kind of crazy that you have to write a the story in nonfiction because it's too unbelievable to be in fiction but that that's sort of how i uh, felt when i was trying to uh, write it as a, as just a straight mystery so um i uh that that's why i had this attachment to the story and then i had so much information uh, I had all of my dad's files. I had all of those years that we had talked about the case and uh, 5,000 pages of the trial transcripts, an unpublished memoir from the district attorney who prosecuted the case that allowed me to get insight um, into um, into what he was thinking about trial strategy. And uh, just, you know, uh, the newspaper covers coverage was a little different back then. It uh, the, the kinds of details that they put in those stories, I don't think you see anymore. I read when you read in my book that somebody was wearing a black and white dress with a Peter Pan collar on the witness stands. That's true. I didn't just make that up. That was in the newspaper uh, story for that day about when that witness uh, testified. So I did have a lot of information that made this uh, made it made me um, allowed me to write this story. And it is written in what they call a uh, narrative or creative nonfiction rather than just a straight journalistic style that you might see for um, a true crime book, because this really reads like a novel. And uh, I wanted, I wanted to use that uh, write in a narrative nonfiction, creative nonfiction, uh, because when I read those trial transcripts and when I read the, 
I mean, uh, it, that story really came alive to me. I mean, there was a really an emotional impact. And I wanted uh, readers to be able to experience that same emotional impact. But every fact in that book is 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 true. You know, I didn't make anything up. Maybe I may I create in that in that style a narrative nonfiction. You can create a scene with little details like oh they're drinking coffee or you know somebody was sitting. Yeah, those things. But every uh, all of the dialogue really uh, I learned from either interviews in the newspaper or what people testified to, because there was so much testimony, like I said, 5,000 pages, that I didn't put it all in the trial. Some of the things that people testified to and said happened, I created a scene somewhere else in the book. So yeah, I don't know so, if that answered the question. <laughs> yeah, well, that was one of, another question I had was about sort of, um, again, like the trial is from 1950s. So like, finding the material and getting access to um, some of those uh, materials. So you talked about that. And and, and some of these, um, some of the people who participated, many of them were public figures, right? But some of them you even chose to kind of give them pseudonyms or sort of create a composite of a number of um, people who were part of this. And so could you talk a little bit about those choices as well as a writer and thinking about like how you're going to represent different people and why right well anybody who testified at the trial and i use their words i, I they have the, the their true name um one of the things was the, was the detectives there were a lot of detectives who worked on this case uh, and in santa barbara especially at the beginning because they investigated the disappearance um i have two detectives mainly um working on this case. One is Charlie Thompson, and he was really the man who um, was able to um, discover the information that kind of broke the case. And there was a, there's a lot of information on Charlie. Other stories have been written about him in the Santa Barbara News Press. And um, I was able to interview his daughter, uh, we connected on Facebook. There was a, you know, a Facebook page. I grew up in Ventura and somebody had brought up that case and, and she said, oh, well, my father, Charlie Thompson was one. And so I immediately sent her a personal message and we had a number of interviews. She was able to talk to me about his personality. There's a scene in a bar with him talk because he got uh, suspended, which also was an article I read in the paper. And his daughter gave me some insight into what he was doing about during the suspension, just as Olga disappeared. And that scene when the, in the bar, uh, when he talks about going back to Chicago and thinking about that's all came, that's all true. That all came from his daughter. So then the other detective, Detective Jim Hansen, is a composite character. And so all the words and everything that uh, uh, Detective Hansen does in the story uh, was done by by a detect some detective on the Santa Barbara Police Force. It was just that there was just too many of them uh, to have in the book, and so I enjoyed creating uh, uh, Detective um, Hansen, and he was. Uh, I used kind of some of the men that um, I grew up, their parent, their their parents of some of my friends just growing up in the 1950s uh, uh, working class neighborhood. And uh, he was very old school and uh, um, he um, 
was kind of, uh, I implied in there that he was a womanizer and had sort of 1950s attitudes. So anyway, he, uh, Detective Hansen's personality is my creation, but the kinds of things that he did in the investigation are documented in that uh, real detectives on the Santa Barbara police force did. Yeah. And so this is because this is sort of also about you and yourself as a child, um, your mother and sister, a bit, right? It's not just about your father in that trial. Um, your, your mother and your sister are um, important sort of characters in the book. And your mother had a very sort of interesting job as well, um, especially during that time period. So could you talk a little bit about um, your mother and your sister and, and that sort of connection and in this book. Sure. Um, my mother was a psychiatric uh, social worker at Camarilla State Hospital, which at the time was called a mental institution. And she worked with uh, 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 people suffering from mental illness that had been institutionalized at this hospital. So throughout the book, there is some discussion about <clears throat> the, def- definite, the difference between truly mental ill people or maybe legal insanity, and the killer uh, in this story, who my father referred to as crazy, but did not really meet the legal definition of uh, somebody who was legally insane. So, yeah, I used some of the information uh, from that. Um, Also, uh, a a story about uh, one of my mother's former patients who was out of the hospital, and she continued to try to help who um, got somewhat involved in, in our lives. Um, but, uh, and my sister, you know, when I was writing the book, I used to call her and ask her questions and we would talk and laugh about things that happened in the family at that same time. Because this book, as strange as that may sound, there is humor in this book. In our family, it's, you know, what's going on there. When I said, uh, you know, about uh, Dave Barry meets Anne Rule in Fargo, there's also this kind of dark humor that's unintended by the um, people who have perpetuated this crime. But I did want to stick in a little bit something else about, I mentioned that my dad wrote a column, columns about our family and at this time. And so he saved a lot of the clippings of those columns all over the years. And he had at the end of his life, he had a big black trash bag in his home office that he used to clip out uh, columns or other stories and toss them into that trash bag. And um, so when my father passed away in uh, 1987, I asked my, this is before I'd ever even started on this book. I asked my mother if I could please have those and she gave them all to me. So when I went through those, um, especially the columns. I got the columns all out um, and read those. I, I read during that time frame, uh, you know, in the ni- 1950s, 58, uh, 59, at the time of the murder and the trial. Um, what a gift that was because my father had a very distinctive, dramatic way of speaking and his voice just uh, came, spoke to me from those yellowed clippings um, that I I really feel like I did get his um, 
quirky and outspoken personality right and i had i i think i i do have um two of his specific columns that i've actually put parts of in the book and there is a couple of other family chapters that i was reminded of oh yes that's what was going on in the family at that time so that was able how how i was able to translate um, more effectively his personality, my mother's, um, because I did have that to rely on. So before we get into um, the trial a little more, I also, another thing I found really interesting was your father was an atheist. And at this time you were like exploring many, many different religions and there was some tension there. And especially again, in the 1950s, a really interesting sort of, you know, juxtaposition. So could you talk a little bit about that too? Because that was some really personal, but also at some points humorous pieces throughout there as well. Right. Um, well, uh, I always felt that we didn't actually fit in very well with the neighborhood, even though we were well liked and I had a lot of friends and I, I know the neighbors liked my my father. We were seen as sort of different and I and we didn't go to church and most everybody else did. So I saw that as uh, maybe if I would go to church, you know, I could, we would fit in better. We, and um, I was not uh, deeply religious. I was looking at this more like hedging my bets, I guess, because I was hoping to, that God would protect me and save me. Uh, we had some, a couple of uh, girls on the, uh, that were my friends from the neighborhood who were extremely religious. And uh, one of them told me a number of times that my family was all going to go to hell um, because we, we didn't attend church. And uh, so that, that bothered me. And uh, so I would uh, go to different churches, kind of searching for salvation and searching for acceptance and uh, uh, especially once Olga was uh, was murdered, uh, that did bother me a lot. But we had no, you know, that God maybe wasn't going to protect us as much as other people. I think there's a place in the book where I say, um, you know, I was worried about this. Uh, my grandmother said that my called my father an atheist and that we needed to protect ourselves more, but we didn't even lock the door because we lost the key. Uh, so I was, you know, uh, that was, I think, rather than being uh, really looking for deep spiritual meaning in my life, I was looking uh, to be more accepted and to find, hopefully find uh, God that would, and, uh, that would protect me. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And so, so you, you know, tell us and you tell us your story, but we also have the story of this, you know, what happened to Olga. And I mean, it's, it's, it's not a secret because, you know, it's the book talks about how this is 
um, also the story of the last woman who was put to death in California and California's death row. And so can you talk a little bit about then, you know, as you're writing this and as you're thinking about this, how this how we this story unfolds, right? How we go from this young woman disappearing um, to finding out that she has, in fact, been murdered. Well, um, as I mentioned, Detective Charlie Thompson, um, well, we know from the beginning uh, that uh, the mother-in-law was harassing Elizabeth Duncan, uh, uh, Olga's mother-in-law, Frank's mother, was harassing Olga uh, from the minute of her marriage. And so they were, um, the police were suspicious of her, but they had no uh, information uh, or evidence um, to uh, arrest her or anything. And Charlie Thompson started thinking that, you know, she had this kind of sidekick, uh, this 80-year-old uh, woman, Emma Short, who was with Mrs. Duncan all the time. And um, Mrs. Duncan was 54 by the time, so uh, Emma's quite a bit older. And uh, Charlie felt if he could get uh, Emma, ta- uh, Emma Short uh, alone, that maybe he could find out what happened. And so that's uh, what he was able to do. And um, that led also uh, to um, finding the people that uh, Elizabeth Duncan had hired to carry this out because she really was just sort of a pathological liar. And she had promised them a lot of money to do this job for her, which she didn't have. And then she had to come up with some money. So she used some money that her son Frank had given a check that her son Frank. And then when he wanted to know where the check came from, she made up the story that she was being blackmailed. Well, that really upset him. So she, he took her to the police station and then everything started unraveling there that they suddenly connected this and uh, were able to figure out uh, because of the who she said was blackmailing her who might be involved with this. And then one of them was arrested and then one of these men was arrested that she accused of blackmail and he eventually spilled the beans and led authorities to the body that turned out to be in Ventura County. And he admitted that they killed her right there where they buried her. And uh, so that that's really how it, it all unraveled and led to the trial. And the other thing about being able to um, tell this story, so much of the details is both the men that um, were hired to kill Olga testified in great detail about everything that happened. And um, this was before Miranda warnings. And uh, so when they were arrested, you, you, you couldn't be, you weren't appointed an attorney at that time until you were actually charged in court. So that when they were inter- being interviewed uh, after they were arrested, they didn't have attorney's advice. And they ended up, you know, telling what happened without ever getting a promise of taking the death penalty off the table. So their lawyers, once they were finally appointed lawyers after their arraignments, they just tried the best they could to get the, the DA to do take the death penalty off the table, which he wouldn't. But he did um, agree to trying them all separately. 
So then they agreed to testify against Mrs. Duncan, who claimed her innocence till the day she died. And, uh, and the trial was just, you know, so many characters. She had asked many people uh, to help her get rid of Olga. That was her, her, her term that she used um, that, you know, did nothing. They didn't tell anybody. And uh, there was a lot of drama in the trial of Mrs. Duncan calling everybody liars. And then the man who prosecuted uh, the DA, he was a young, he was the youngest DA that had ever been elected in Ventura County. And this was the beginning of his fourth term. And he was only like 42 years old at that point. He'd been elected like when he was 30. And um, so maybe his third term. But um, so anyway, he took this very personally. He really um, wanted uh, to uh, see these people punished. And uh, it's very, you know, kind of just happenstance of what uh, happened because in the, somewhere in the middle 60s, the Ventura DA's, DA's office uh, discovered that all of the transcripts from the Duncan trial were missing. And uh, they didn't know what happened to them. They would periodically uh, uh, search the office. And, um, Fast forward at, to 2000, uh, 2001 approximately, I think. And uh, an, uh, uh, the law firm that uh, the DA, his name was uh, Roy Gustafson, had founded uh, in the 60s when he left the DA's office, uh, was shutting down. Uh, it was going out of business. It was during a big recession at the time. And um, so there was... a uh, and, and, and Roy Gustafson was long dead. He had died, uh, uh, you know, I would think, I think it was about seven or eight years after um, the killers were executed. So there was an attorney uh, working in that firm that had also uh, grown up in Ventura and he's a couple of years older than me. And he was a paper boy at the time. And he used to read the headline stories of this Duncan case as he folded the papers uh, before he went out on his route. Well, he was an attorney at this point in the um, in this law firm, and he was uh, cleaning out their law library. And up uh, on a top shelf in that library, he discovered these bound um, uh, transcripts. And opening up and looking at them, he knew it exactly what they were because he'd also been fascinated by the trial when he was a kid. So he contacted the DA's office they got the transcripts back and they were there when then I requested them a couple of years later. But also on that top shelf was the unpublished memoir that Roy Gresson had written about the case. And so uh, this um, lawyer, his name's Bob McSorley, um, he found that too. And that's how I was able to, uh, to read that, to, to, to understand what this, uh, DA was thinking about the witnesses, about the the killers, um, and uh, most importantly about some of the strategy he had from the trial. There's a, a uh, some um, pages in there where he is very worried that he's ruined his case by getting testimony um, on the on the record that maybe could be could have his case overturned. I got that all from his memoir. That was truly his worry and and uh, what his his thought process 
So, so I mean, there's so much that happens, <laughs> like you said at the beginning. You keep saying, like, there's so much that goes on that you're kind of you read and you're like, really? And now this? Um, so right, uh, like <laughs> she than fiction, right? <laughs> like yes, like she try, she gets the marriage, she gets the marriage annulled, right? Uh-huh. Or yes. right? Mm-hmm. She, we also find out that she has over ten, like a dozen husbands or right like, yeah, like so were there things like right there's all these in here so was there anything or were there things that you either weren't sort of privy to as a 10 year old or that you didn't remember that you're as you're reading this you're like oh like this is making it even more you know out there than I'd originally thought yeah right yes uh I learned lots of details that I didn't know as a 10 year old and as you know the memoir part is written as a, in first person, but the crime chapters are all written in third person. So that's not written from uh, my 10-year-old point of view. That's written from uh, my research and, and what happened, and also from my dad's point of view, because I have all the articles you know, that he wrote about uh, the trial and all of our discussions and his files. So, but yes, your question did... Uh, I was I surprised about some of the things. Yes, I didn't. I was surprised about all of the um, uh, all of the husbands uh, to a certain extent and all of the details. I there's so much in there. I didn't have a lot of the husbands that testified in the penalty trial about what had happened. And uh, I, I just couldn't put all of that in. I think one of the things also that um you know, was a little bit uh, more information for me. Um, my dad never thought that Frank Duncan, the son, oldest husband, and Mrs. Duncan's uh, son, was involved in uh, her killing. And, um, but there's kind of this uh, lore about the case in Ventura that a lot of people uh, will say and believe that somehow he was part of the conspiracy. And uh, my research pretty much, you know, uh, got rid of that idea. Uh, Roy Gustafson in his memoir says, you know, that uh, he and he really disliked Frank Duncan for a lot of reasons for leaving his wife alone. But he says, you know, we should thank Frank Duncan. This case would have never been solved if he hadn't dragged his mother down to the police station when she was insisting that she'd been, uh, well, she was being extorted, but she called it blackmail you know, that that would uh, never have uh, happened without him. And so that kind of at least uh, answered that question for me, because when I started writing, I wasn't sure how I was going to handle that. There's also um, uh, the, the uh, um, prosecutor, uh, Roy Gustafson, also put out a lot of ideas that um, there was incest going on between Frank and his mother, and that that's why she was so insistent that he couldn't be married to her. Uh, Again, my dad, when we talked, he never really believed that. And so the really the only testimony, well, there's two witnesses that that testified, but there really wasn't any evidence that he ever put on. his, uh, Mrs. Duncan's uh, defense attorney felt like he was just sort of trying to really stir up uh, interest, make it more sensational, and maybe poison the jury pool before they ever get there. So the way I've left it in the book is, you know, here's the information I have, and uh, I don't think that that question is 
is resolved, but I didn't really see any strong evidence that that, that, that was what happened, that there was incest. I think she was a woman with no boundaries, absolutely no boundaries, and that she treated her son like he was the adult and she tried to rely on him like she would a husband. So there was definitely emotional incest if there were, even if there wasn't uh, you know, the actual physical. And and so do I have any of these? So one another thing I was wondering, you know, after reading it and at the end, you kind of give a little bit of information about sort of what happened to the people in this. But has Olga's family or Frank Duncan's family, has anyone really talked, whether it's on record or in any other way about this trial and, and this experience after this, or was it just like after it happened and after they were executed? Um, this was something that people who were there might remember, but the rest is kind of lost to history. Yeah, it is. But the interesting thing is I've been, I was contacted by two of Olga's uh, relatives, descendants after my book came out. Um, they live, still live in Canada and they heard about it. And um, the one is uh, the daughter of Olga's brother. And uh, she sent me this very nice uh, email that, you know, you can, through my website, you can contact me. And she went there and thanked me um, for writing this. She said, you have no idea how terrible, what a terrible effect this had on uh, my family. And my grandparents, that they were Olga's parents, were were just devastated. My grandmother never got over it, um, and uh, you know they they just couldn't figure out. We said they said we just couldn't figure out how her husband could uh, have left her alone and allowed this to happen. And um, yeah, that's something that came out. Uh, Frank Duncan had to know that that uh, his mother was threatening his wife, uh, and I believe that he also, by the time of the trial, knew that his mother was guilty. I think that he just was standing by her side and testifying her uh, uh, in court about her, lying for her, because he was trying to save her from the death penalty. And, uh, but, you know, they, she was very, um, you know, into, she says, I, I, I want to know what was going on in her life, what, was, what happened in this trial. And uh, another one of, her nieces, who never really knew the grandparents, she also uh, contacted me about before she read the book about being very interested in reading the book. I also, the very first uh, book launch event I had was at a bookstore in Santa Barbara. Um, and it was in the newspaper up there and everything that I was going to be there speaking about this book. And so when we were waiting around to start, uh, someone came over to me and she says, uh, There's a, a woman over there. It, it, she's. Uh, oh, um, uh, Elizabeth Duncan's niece, and she would like to talk to you. So I went over there and uh, uh, met her, Louise, and she told me she had her friend with her that, you know, she was a teenager at the time this all happened. And uh, she talked a little bit about Elizabeth Duncan, who they called Aunt Hazel, because Elizabeth Duncan had just up and changed her name from Hazel to Elizabeth because she liked it better. And um, 
she just said uh, they had nothing good to say about her said that she was always just dressed to the nines and that she was man crazy and the other woman with her was her teenage friend who also knew her she just yeah she was awful she was awful <laughs> so and then i've heard from a couple uh, another one of uh, elizabeth duncan's relatives and i heard from baldonano one of the higher killers uh, uh, um, augustine baldonado his son got in touch with me and um, so I have heard from some of these people since the book came out. And nobody was mad. You know, sometimes in true crime, people, the relatives are upset that you've written about their, um, you know, the, the killers that were their uh, uh, rel- um, well, relatives. But uh, the, the son, one of um, uh, uh, Maldonado's children, uh, was actually one of the twins that is actually mentioned being born uh, just after Olga disappeared. And he said that from the time he found out what his father had done, uh, he wanted to know about it as much about it as possible. And of course, his relatives weren't very interested in talking about it. It was something that um, nobody um, wanted to talk about. And so he kind of started off on an investigation on his own. And he told me he has all the trial transcripts and um, he actually went to Sacramento to look at some of the exhibits from the appeals and that he talked to people that before they died, some of the detectives. And um, so it was very interesting because when we were talking, the way I got uh, in touch with him or he got in touch with me is he called another bookstore where I was doing a launch and said, he wanted to talk to me and they said, well, we can't give you your information, but leave your number and we'll give it to her. So I thought about it for a while. And I, when I, before I called him and we both admitted that we were a little concerned that uh, we, each other might be mad. I said, I was a little worried about calling you because I thought you would be angry that I had written about your father. And he said, well, I was afraid that you would be angry at me for being the son of someone who had uh, committed this terrible crime. So we talked for quite a while. It's a good discussion. So you see, so you've taught right. So this book came out in October, and you talked a bit about book launches. Um, are there other things that are coming up that you are working on with this book um, at all? Or, well, my my agent is uh, busy negotiating film rights, so I think that that is coming up. I, I really can't say anything more about that. Um, yes, I have uh, on my. Uh, website, I think that it is it is up there now. If not, it should be. The website is, but there's going to be a page for uh, book clubs. I've done a lot of book clubs lately. And so I have put up there, if uh, you have a book club that's read the book and you're interesting, uh, interested in me in um, a- answering questions and talking about my book, that I, I'm willing to do Zoom uh, book club meetings where, uh, you know, people can ask me some questions for 45 minutes or an hour. I just have other, um, I've done, I've been doing some podcasts. I've done quite a few on true crime. I did another one on Tuesday. Um, and so those are in the works. Uh, and, uh, also, I I have some speaking engagements. This is in Ventura County that I'm going to. Um, one's a Rotary Club, and one is a, a book club at a, a a Leisure World community. And uh, then I, I I'm hoping to schedule something at the library. So yeah, I I'm um, 
doing uh, quite a quite a few things. It seems like every week that there's something that I do. But you know, it, I am in, in California, and it's uh, difficult to go speak at bookstores in other parts of the country. So that's why I put up with uh, uh, the book club. That I'd be happy to do that. I also have. Um, an author Facebook page, Deborah Holt Lark, an author on Facebook, that I posted a n- number of my father's old columns that didn't really have anything to do with it. But people, that's that's kind of been a big hit. Uh, people have really enjoyed uh, reading his columns, and I in- in- intend to continue uh, doing that. And uh, yeah, and there's a lot of things on my website, uh, DeborahLarkin.com, also. So I'll ask you my one usual final question usually um, is, so this is your first book. Um, so is there anything else you're that you can talk about that or that you want to talk about that you're working on now? Like, is this, have you dipped your toe in and you're done or are you off um, like on a ne- your next adventure? <laughs> well, I want to be off on my next adventure. I would say I felt so fortunate that uh, Pegasus was, uh, you know, willing to, to, uh, uh, published my book, a first time author, a woman of a certain age with no platform. And um, so I, I'm happy that this book is doing well. And I'm hoping after this, that I will finally write that fiction book. I, I, I want to write a mystery this time. Uh, I would no, not be able to write another true crime book because, you know, I just, it was, I'm, I'm in a unique position that uh, I have had all of this information um, all of this material to research that I could write this true crime. Yeah, but hopefully my next book will be a mystery and I want to get started on it as soon as possible. Awesome. Well, Debbie, thanks for talking with me again. This was um, Deborah Holt Larkin, the author of A Lovely Girl. Thanks for talking with me for new books in popular culture. Well, and thanks for having me on the program. I enjoyed it. <laughs>